a podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. So what if you could launch a scalable startup in just a week's time with no money invested? That'd be pretty good news for a lot of us who are spending the great majority of our time making a living, right? Maybe we've grown ourselves a little business or we've got a freelancer consulting gig that pays well but takes a lot of time. We don't have tons of resources to invest in the next big idea or tons of time to roll it out the door. Today's guest has not only articulated an approach in his book, The 7-Day Startup, but has also used it to grow WP Curve to close to $25,000 in monthly recurring revenue his first year, and I think now the startup sits at over $50,000 monthly recurring. So today's guest, you probably know, it's Dan Norris. I've mentioned Dan Norris a million gazillion times on the show. In fact, I can't believe I've never had him on the show. I thought I did. I, I could have sworn that Dan's been on the show before. So I'm really excited to have him. Now, one thing I want you to take note of is that I've been following Dan online. I know him personally for years. So the questions that I'm going to be asking him are from that perspective. So if you want to get up to speed on Dan's bio and what he's been up to, there's going to be a lot of helpful links. They're all going to be at tropicalmba.com slash seven-day startup. Also, it would be great if you could read the book before you listen to the show, although you don't need to to get value out of it. And if you're really looking for extra credit, I recommend listening to Dan's interview on Startups for the Rest of Us. In fact, I enjoyed that interview so much. I just want to play you a a clip of one of my favorite moments on that show. You know, what would you say to a founder who might be listening to this or an aspiring founder for that matter, who it was in your shoes a year ago where you were working on a software product and you had to spend some time building something. You couldn't just launch in seven days, right? Because you were building a SaaS app. A week is hard for a software business. It's probably one of the harder ones to do, but the amount of time it takes to build the product is a consideration. If you're in a situation like you are where you've got a bunch of success and you're kind of free to explore, you don't need your next startup necessarily to be a big success. If it fails, you'll be fine. That's a different situation than I was in and that probably a lot of your audiences are in. In that situation, I think you're better considering an idea that enables you to launch quickly and don't think about a startup that's going to take you 12 months to build for, for at least for your first one. I think this idea is so underrepresented out there, this idea that just because it's a good idea doesn't mean it's a good idea for you. Just because you can do the lean startup validation thing and that it looks like it's going to work and there's a market for it, that doesn't necessarily mean that you as, say, the first-time entrepreneur, the person who doesn't have tons of money or tons of time, that might not be the idea for you. So we're going to dig into how we can put Dan's framework to work for people who are looking to build something scalable even though they don't have tons of time or money. We'll be in the comments. We'd love to hear from you. TropicalMBA.com slash seven-day startup. I start this interview by asking Dan how his ideas differ from many of those out there in the startup space. Well, I think the probably the place that started it all was a blog post I wrote about startup validation and not so much that validation doesn't work full stop, but that validation 
as a concept doesn't work very well for bootstrapped entrepreneurs for a variety of reasons. And with my last startup informally, I kind of tried everything that I thought was validation, including, you know, surveying people, working out the conversion rates on landing pages, running paid ads, all that kind of stuff to work out. And I actually actually had a document where I had like, is this idea validated or is this idea not validated? And I had criteria in there and it's like if if i got mentioned in the tech press then that was like a little indicator of validation and if i had a certain percentage of conversions on my landing page and that was the indicator of validation the way i think about it now is especially for like a solo entrepreneur it's not a case of whether an idea is valid or isn't valid i mean in many ways the idea for informally was already validated because there's companies that already do this but the question is not is the idea valid the question is can i make a business with that idea and that brings in a whole bunch of stuff that is not considered with the concept of validation. So that blog post kind of kicked off that thought. And the book focuses on you know, how, as a bootstrapped entrepreneur, you can actually validate something, which is how can you actually start a business and get paying customers and move past validation altogether. I think this is a really good point. So informally, your last you have a gazillion products at this point, but one of your products was basically a dashboard for analytics for small business entrepreneurs. And I enjoyed my dashboard. I liked logging into informally. One of the points you brought up in your book was that it helps for small bootstrap startups to really take advantage of a founder's best energy. In your case, that looks like you know, you're really great at content marketing and getting out there and, and networking and things. I'm curious, when you look back at Informally, do you have like a solid post-mortem on it? Like, I feel like that could work still for you or for somebody else. Why do you feel like it ultimately didn't end up becoming a business for you? That's probably a good point. I don't know if I actually have written a post that actually says exactly what was wrong with that particular business. But I think the concepts that were going through my head at the time I all came out in the book. And there wasn't a particularly good fit about you know the way I generate interest in things and that business. As soon as I launched a, a service around fixing websites, things exploded because that's just my whole background. I've been working on it for years. Everyone knows me as that. So there's that product founder fit piece. The idea itself, I think a software business is a really, really difficult thing to start. And it's interesting looking around at even some of the leading software guys who are starting to release their reports now and the revenue they're generating from their software and then need to to do other business models to generate the majority of their revenue. That kind of thing is is probably surprising to a lot of people because people probably think these guys have got a software product like a typical startup that's generating a lot of money and growing significantly each month. But a lot of these guys are not generating much money from software. And I think even the guys who do eventually figure it out, whether they get funding or not, have probably got a string of failures in their past. I think even you're one of them and I'm one of them. It's really, really difficult to build a software product and especially as a first business. Is there like a example you could give without pissing anybody off? I mean, sometimes I think like, you know, building startups is really hard, but then when you get into the group of people that are quote successful or lauded online as successful, you simultaneously realize like how in reach it is. You know, like a lot of these people who are famous for being successful software people, yeah, I mean, they're not doing crazy stuff. I mean, they might have raised crazy money. I think it depends who you follow. I mean, a lot of the bootstrap crowd, a lot of those guys are not making a lot of money from their recurring SaaS product. And most of them are are selling info products. And I'm a little bit skeptical with info products. And I think software generally is a hard... Like a software startup is a really hard thing to bootstrap. And I included one example in the book of someone who has gone from 
working on something for a week and this bear metrics is the software app josh pigford is the guy's name he's been working in the software industry for at least a decade i think but that particular app he worked on for a week all of his metrics are online and it's going extremely well i think since i wrote the book i think he got half a million dollars in funding so there are like really rare examples of that but a lot of like the bootstrap crowd they either don't publish their reports or when they do you kind of read them and think like you're actually making most of your money from info products or from ebooks or a community or something. With the potential of something like a software startup that operates in a really big market, there's no way you would be selling info products if you had the potential to be working on a, a 10-figure software startup. Selling information on how to build businesses is a, a way bigger and easier market than a lot of their original startups, like you said. So it makes a lot of sense. You're right. <laughs> it's like- I think I bought into the software thing. I, I, I kind of thought like, okay, for me to have a startup, it has to be software. I mean, that's the first mistake I made. I'm actually thinking now more along the lines of how can you build something that is services and software? And I'm going to be putting out some content on this because in two of the business I'm working on, I'm going to be looking at services and software. And to talk about WP Curve for a minute, that started as purely services and you can start a services business in a week, no problem. But the ultimate solution to fixing WordPress problems is going to be a system solution and a services solution. It's not just people. So I think that kind of business I'm really excited about. I think like as a bootstrapper, if you can start something that is services, but work towards building an advantage using software, I think you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. I have a lot of questions regarding that. But one thing I wanted to ask you, you know, post book launch is based on the feedback that you've been getting from your readers, and it's been incredible just to look at your Amazon page. I mean, people are really resonating with this book. What do you think like the next one or two chapters would be in the second edition? Like, What do people want to hear more about, or what are they maybe misunderstood about your message? I think that the two I'd probably pick is something around momentum. And I think that originally I was going to write a book about momentum, and then I kind of realized there was just nothing actionable in there. And I, it's not in me to produce content that's not actionable. So <laughs> I'd like to kind of riff on that because I think it's I mean, really, I'm not working any harder than I've ever worked. I'm not really doing anything differently than I've ever done in terms of my day-to-day work. The, the only thing is that from day one, WP Curve has had momentum and it hasn't stopped for 19 months. So getting to the point where you've got that month-on-month growth, talking about that more, like getting into that situation where like, you just get into that momentum and how do you know when you're in that momentum, that's a common thing. And the other one is knowing when to quit. That's probably the most common question I get asked and I never have a good answer for it. So if I could sit down and work out a good answer to that one, I'd probably focus on that too, even though it's not particularly positive. <laughs> your subtitle to your book is You Don't Learn Until You Launch. And I'm curious, as somebody who buys a lot of books on Amazon and would love to put one up there someday, what have you learned about being a published author on Amazon and about selling books in general? I mean, I'll be totally honest with you. This is what happened with the book. I wrote it in about a week. I didn't do anything for about six months because Alyssa was reviewing it for me and I had Derek from the DC. By the way, both of those guys did it for me for free and these are relationships I built through you and through the DC. So, I mean, pretty much every aspect of my business goes back to you and the DC in some way. But those guys worked on it, formatting the book and editing the book. It took a long time. By the time it was done, originally I was just thinking of putting it up on the site as opt-in bait. And then I'm like, well, there's a lot of work's gone into this. So I decided to hire a guy for one month to focus on marketing and actually put it on Amazon. And from there, it just exploded. I can't tell you what I know about Amazon. I just know that it's been downloaded 20,000 times and it's still number two in startups. It's currently being translated into three different languages, which I get paid for. I have an agent who does the translation rights, and he's also a guy from the DC. It's, it's just insane. I mean, I don't know if I can provide anything valuable except for the, the post about the marketing is something we put up on our site, which maybe you'd like to link to, which that process of getting an ambassador group to kind of share the content and write reviews and that kind of thing was, was a really, really big part of it. Having it free for a week 
getting it ranking in the free section and then when it went to paid, it translated over and it kept ranking in the paid. So, I mean, that's probably the most actionable stuff. The rest is just a complete surprise. It's not surprising after having read it, actually. It's a really great book. I don't think it matters how long it took you to write it. I mean, I think it really resonated with me and I think you brought new stuff to the table. So just to tack onto that, you know, you mentioned on another show that I was listening to, I think it was WPCast, you mentioned that, you know, you were making good money off of this book. Based on your experience, a lot of bloggers listen to this show. How many books would somebody need to sell or how big of a platform would someone need to have in order to become a full-time author? I mean, that's really interesting because I don't actually have a very big platform and I don't have, like I've got a list of about 15,000 people, but it's like been cobbled together over the years and I don't get particularly high rates of engagement on that. I don't think it's a question of size of the platform. I think I think I was lucky with this book. It just seemed to hit a nerve. But in terms of number of sales, it's still selling as much as it was. Like I think on that show, I was selling about 40, 50 copies a day and it still is. And I think I make like two or $3 per copy. So theoretically, if it kept selling like this, I could, I'm probably earning more than I used to, used to earn with my agency. Probably earning like a decent wage and then add on top of that the translation rights which i get about two grand or plus percentage each time so there's a few things one it doesn't feel like a business and it's not a business and i'm sure at some point it'll just dry up the other thing is that there's probably much better ways to monetize content i think being a full-time author i think is i just don't think that's a good business so for me i don't even actually count that revenue in in any of my planning in any, I don't count it as a business. I mean, that money just kind of goes into an account at the end of the tax year. I'll do something with it if it keeps coming in. But yeah, I mean, at the moment, it potentially could be a full-time living if it keeps going the way it's going. You might call it like the seven-day shakedown. Like you can basically go to any kind of product and give a prospective entrepreneur a seven-day version of it. And you have a few moments in your book when you do this. I was wondering if you could sort of show that process the one that sticks out to me is like when you suggest that people use a spreadsheet instead of a SaaS. Could you share with us what you mean by that? The best example I can think of is one that I actually did. You know, it's good to talk hypothetically, but this is something I actually did and it worked. And that was with WP Curve, where I said to everyone I was releasing a 24-7 WordPress support service. It was really just me. And it was me with a mobile phone next to my head when I went to sleep at night. And if the person came through on live chat, then it would disturb me and Katie and she'd be pissed off and I'd be happy because I had a customer. I think the important thing is how it looks to the customer. That's really the only thing that matters. Does the customer feel like they're getting what you're proposing? And, and that is actually really testing if they care about it. So... In that case, the experience of the customer was almost identical to what they have now. They can send an email 24-7, they can jump on live chat 24-7, and they'll get a response. I didn't need to have a whole team around it. I didn't even need to have another person, at least for the first few weeks. So with services, it's really doable. With software, the only examples I can think of are, again, are sort of hypothetical ones where I know with my dashboard, I could have quite easily set up a system where people log in, they clicked a bunch of services, they click MailChimp, Analytics, Zero, and then click Generate Report, and then instead of them getting that live they just have a screen that says you'll get your report via email soon and then i'll just sit there and manually crunch it and then look at if they keep doing it if, if they keep wanting it each month they keep paying each month or you know are they actually opening the emails and clicking on the emails are they an active customer as opposed to just someone who says they like the idea so there's ways you can do it i wouldn't go so far as to say you can do it with every type of business but then at the same time i think i've written this book for people who haven't had a big hit yet and they're looking for their first proper business and some businesses are just not a very good fit for that. So I'm trying to focus in the book on ideas that are really are good ideas for first-time entrepreneurs. What are some of the best 
seven-day startup ideas that you've heard since the book has been published. Are there you know, any success stories or things that you've seen since publishing the book that have jumped out at you? It's pretty funny. Yesterday, I read a, a story from a guy who has read my book and who is basically completely copying exactly what I've done, releasing a, a WordPress support service with unlimited jobs, 30-minute jobs, $69 a month. <laughs> so there's plenty of that. And then a lot of it is because I'm quite specific in the book around the different business models and how to structure it. And so a lot of it is like WP Curve for X, you know, WP Curve for paid advertising or design's a really popular one, you know, unlimited design each month for X amount of dollars. I've got over a thousand people in the Facebook group now where we talk about this stuff, which is another super cool thing that I didn't expect. And I know there's definitely people who've launched businesses. I know there's people who've got paid customers. I don't know if there's anyone who's launched anything that's taking off like WP Curve did, but it's still early days too. A lot of people have only sort of just read the book and they're just launching the startups now. And literally like every day I'll see on mention.net people who are mentioning the book and mentioning the process and they're, they're like following it to the letter and doing a startup in seven days. So it's, yeah, it's really cool. So on the other side of the fence, what have been some of the key trouble that people have had in implementing your ideas? Like I've had a few friends who, you know, in nominally want to become entrepreneurs and I've literally like given them your book and said, like, do this, like it's seven days, just do what exactly what he says. And like, there's objections that come up, you know what I mean? And I'm like, are you crazy? You could do it in seven days. <laughs> so have you yeah. seen that? And has it driven you crazy? And what sort of counterattack are you mounting? Well, I mean, a few things. I know not everyone is like me and like to do things as ridiculously as quickly as I like to do them and are as pig-headed about getting something done as I am. And arguably, you do need to be like that to be an entrepreneur. But I'm sure you get this all the time where like people will literally ask you questions about content you've put out, questions that are specifically answered in the content. (laughs) So... I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I I guess you could tell people to read the book again, but I just, I have the Facebook group. I get a lot of emails and I sort of try to direct them through to the Facebook group so that other people can see the responses. And on top of that, I just think being an entrepreneur is not easy. And if if you can't commit to doing something like that, kind of, maybe it's just a, a natural selection thing where you get weeded out of the entrepreneurship pool. Yeah, so WP Curve gives you unlimited small 30-minute fixes by a developer every month for $69. And our typical customers range from you know, solo, online, savvy sort of business operator through to bigger companies that don't have internal WordPress experts. Typically, it's small businesses. It was started in a couple of days, 18 months ago, and we've grown to, I think the latest is about 57 grand in monthly recurring revenue, 31 team members, 750 customers, a co-founder in the US. And I mean, yeah, craziness. <laughs> it's awesome. I, I have friends who like use your service. Like I didn't even know it until I was like, hey, how are you going to get that done? Oh yeah, you know, I'm using the WP Curve thing. I have a friend, you know, he's a popular blogger and he doesn't have any technical support and he uses your team. And he even mentioned to me, he was a little bit concerned as to whether he could use your service for something he wanted to get done. And I think this is a tough part for people when they're drawing up these seven-day startups, trying to figure out the kind of product messaging expectations fit. What kind of expectations do you set with your customers in terms of what they get for their monthly subscription fee? All we really say is that anything that can be done by a developer in 30 minutes is covered. And if you're not sure, you can contact us. And and if it's not covered, we'll tell you before we start. And if we can't do it, then, then we don't do it. 
it. It's not a case of like we charge you extra or something. It's just either part of the service or it's not. But there's a more complicated answer around, you know, the copy on the website, the examples of jobs, the canned responses that people get when they ask that question on live chat, the automated sequences they get after they sign up and and we suggest jobs to them and all kinds of stuff that kind of encourages people to request jobs and, and teaches them, trains them what kind of a job would be suitable for the service. We've known each other for a while now. We're getting a little old, Dan. We're getting up there on the on the webs. <laughs> I remember talking to you in 2012, and at the time, you were really averse to the idea of starting a services business. And I think with WP Curve, you've shown a lot of people online that services business don't have to be all that bad. I guess, what have you learned about running a services business, and how has your attitude changed towards them? And what do you see as the difference between a services business that we might have talked about in 2012 and service as a service, as you've been saying? I suppose the way I look at it in hindsight is that I was on a bit of a journey where I was kind of listening to this week in startup episodes and dreaming about having my own startup, assuming it had to be software and absolutely hating on my last business and and vowing never to ever provide services in any capacity ever again to now where there's probably a few things that stand in your way when you're a solo entrepreneur. One is that you've virtually no chance of getting funding. So typical startup is kind of out of reach in a way. And the other thing is you need to do stuff really quickly. So I was in a position where I needed to do something within two weeks and services is really the only option. So my journey went from that to how do I actually take the best bits out of the startup world and do them as a service, which I suppose you would call it productized servicing. And a lot of people talk about that, but I kind of think I took it a step further in that I really wanted to do something that was high growth. I didn't want to just generate a wage from this. I wanted to build a company that could be a multi-million dollar company. And from day one, I wanted to feel like that was what I was building. All those growth elements that you see in startups, like the consistent growing revenue, the really simplified service, the brand building, the press, all that kind of stuff, I really wanted to build into this. Now I'm actually really excited about services. And and I look at even like the Peter Thiel book I recently read, he specifically talked about the idea of combining software and people to provide a solution. And I think with some of the stuff I'm going to do this year, that's going to be my real differentiator this year is the ability to build software as well as build a service and build it together to have something you can launch quickly and also something that's got a really significant advantage. So one example on that is with WP Curve, we've got a whole bunch of imitators copying us, but by the time they get to doing what we're doing, we would have gone through 18 months of working out where all the problems were and we would have built a system that's going to help us actually solve those problems. So in a way, it's kind of becoming a software company. So yeah, it's been a journey, but that's kind of where I'm at now with its service and software as a service. (laughs) One of the characteristics of a high-growth software company is that their acquisition targets. Have people been reaching out to you asking you to buy the company or what would be the profile of a company that would want to buy something like WP Curve? Have you thought much about that? Not really. I mean, the only thing I've thought about is is how do we make WP Curve more like a startup in that it's appealing to investors, even though it's not my intention to get investment. But I think if your business is not appealing to investors, it's probably a good sign that it's not actually a decent scalable business. And investors probably don't get too excited about services generally. So I think part of the puzzle is building some kind of asset that's either like a unique IP or it's something that's really hard for competitors to copy. And so that's the piece that I think we need to do this year, which is our system. But in terms of whether or not people have reached out, people have asked us about investing. And every time they do, I kind of think, well, we don't really need any money. So I'm not really sure what we do with it. And I'm happy owning half of the company myself for now. No one's asked us if they want to buy us. I don't know. I don't know if it, it becomes an acquisition target at some point or if it just becomes a really good business that keeps generating money. I'm not actually sure. One of the things that's common with anybody who's publishing online, you know, it's like, these are my ups, these are my downs, but hey, we made 57 grand last month. It's often hard to convey effectively the kind of 
effed upness that can be really happening in your day to day. You know, you're writing a hundred emails and like, you know, someone's pissed at you or whatever. I guess like what's worrying you or what's frustrating you or what's been really challenging you guys over the last few months at WP Curve? We really have only three problems that I can think of. One is how do we hire over in the US time zone? Another is retention. Is the Philippines your primary recruiting space now? Yeah, so we have an Asia-Pacific team and a U.S. team, and the Philippines just continues to provide us with great people at an affordable price, and the U.S. continues to be difficult. And there's so many different ways we can solve that problem, and we're just experimenting with how we do it. Some are, are simple, as in pay more money and hire in different locations, and some are more complex, as in change the whole structure of the way we structure the service and structure the developers and that kind of thing. So that's an ongoing thing. Customer service quality is the other one. And that's where I think the system comes in. And there's also a people component to that where we have Julie who's doing one-on-ones with all of our teams and working out the problems and working out like what makes them more productive and where they're getting held up, like that kind of stuff. That's an ongoing thing. And just retention at the moment, we're growing really quickly. So the churn kind of in a way doesn't pop up as something we need to address straight away. But retention is definitely a challenge with the services business because there's nothing there to lock people in. So they're the three things. One of the things that was shocking to me is that you're starting a bunch of other startups. I mean, I think I follow you on all your social media. You're doing Helloify. You're writing your personal email. You are starting a brewing company, which is rad. How does your co-founder feel about that? And how do you manage those emotions? And why do you think it's a good idea to be doing other stuff given that WP Curve appears to be a goldmine? Well, I don't necessarily think it's a good idea, but for A, I can't help myself, and B, the, just a bunch of opportunities just kind of fell into my lap that I couldn't say no to. Like like the book stuff, I really enjoy writing. I want to push myself to write more, so I want to write another book, and I want to, I want that to be a bestseller. The beer stuff, I mean, who's going to say no to starting a brewing company? So I'm just going to do that regardless because it's beer. And the, the Halafi stuff, I think there's a really interesting opportunity there that no one's really doing that I think I can add a lot of value to. And plus, I love building software, and plus Luke's sitting next to me, so I have to be nice. <laughs> That's probably the best answer I can give you to that question. On the co-founder thing, it's sort of weird how the way it's turned out with our relationship. Like The way I thought it would be was like a Dan and Ian marriage type model, but that's not really how it's ended up like the way it's kind of ended up is we each have a list of things that we know we can do best and it's not really enough to fill up a whole week worth of work and so we focus on doing those things and as long as those problems are being solved then we're kind of free to do whatever we want and Alex does a bit of stuff I mean he he kind of spends a lot of time meeting with people and catching up and he writes for Forbes and he he has his own site and does a weekly email newsletter. I think he does a bit of coaching. He does a bit of stuff outside of WP Curve. And I mean, my daily life in business is mostly WP Curve, but then I've got these other things I'm working on as well. The beer stuff's mostly after hours. The writing is something I'm going to have to prioritize. I'll probably do it nighttime as well. And Helloify is more of a during the day thing, but it's it's not like a full-time thing. So I don't know what the answer is to that. I mean, I, I would love to just work on one thing, but I kind of can't help myself. So I've been reading your stuff online for years now, Dan, and I'm curious, you actually get a lot of flack, you know, you put yourself out there in particular about publishing income reports. Like there's people that come out and just say, oh, this is stupid. We've talked a lot about, you know, how your blogs, they don't lead direct to customers. You know, it's not like five reasons to use my service. You're going out there Mm. and you're doing this practitioner preacher model, which is kind of like Rob Walling and Patrick McKenzie, which is like, it's sort of the opposite of what we talked about at the top of the show. These guys might spend five to 25% of their time building their SaaS. And then they spend the majority of their time teaching 
teaching other people how to do what they do with very little of their time. So in your case, you sort of do the opposite. You spend about 70 to 80% of your time doing your work and then about 20% of your time telling others about it. I guess I'm just curious as to, especially with publishing your income online, what do you think is the net result of that? And do you think this is something that's just, you know, you have a, a certain drive to do this and a certain charisma, or do you feel like this is a strategy that's emerging that can work for others? It's a really, really hard question because originally when I started doing content marketing, I tried to analyze it and I tried to quantify, did this blog post lead to email opt-in? Did that email opt-in lead to customer? And the more I did it, the more I kind of realized that the content marketing is really just like a brand building exercise to me. And I know like the analytical entrepreneurs are not going to want to hear that and they're going to want to see some ROI. But to me, like, WP Curve gets mentioned all over the place now. Like even Pat Flynn had me on his show and he's like, oh, Dan, I've heard about WP Curve everywhere. Like I've never met the guy before. That kind of stuff happens all the time. And I can really only put that down to doing a lot of content and putting our brand out there a lot. And I think it's really rare, probably one, two, three, maybe times ever we've done a piece of content where that has directly led to a customer signing up. And the Pat Flynn episode is is one example. But generally, it's creating a resource and building an asset over time, which is your brand. And it's building your brand in the eyes of Google and in the eyes of the community. There was a point at WP Curve where I had more people referring people to WP Curve than actually using the service. Like we've never pushed the affiliate program, but, but we had more affiliates than customers at a point because I think people knew about us. It was just that simple and they've come across us through the content. Whether or not it works for other people and what the net result is, is really hard to tell. I mean, I know there's definitely copycats as a result of the the income reports, but there's more copycats as a result of the book. Maybe that's a good thing long term. As long as we can keep innovating and, and figure out a way to, you know, take it to the next level, then maybe that's fine. But there's definitely been a lot more attention and I know there's negative stuff you kinda of see on Facebook and in the comments and whatnot, but the majority is positive and the majority is probably private that replies to my emails and stuff like that that people don't really see. So I know people love the reports. It's gonna be a whole category when we redesign the blog on the site because it's they're the most popular content on our site. And it is a bit of a trend as well. There's a bunch of startups doing it in an even more serious way than, than we're doing it. So yeah, maybe it works for other people if it's done well. One of the things I hadn't thought to ask you about is your affiliate program, which seems to be working really well. How much money is your top affiliate making? I guess I, even though I follow your content, I don't have a strong consciousness about how that's working. I mean, do you guys see that as a critical component of your growth or is it just something that you do for your customers? Yeah, no, I don't see it as critical. I see people referring us as critical, but whether or not they get paid for it, I don't think is that important. Our top affiliates don't make a lot of money. Our affiliate program is not that generous. I've never really been a big fan of affiliate programs. I don't use the links myself for other things. But at the same time, people want to refer us. And if if their business model is to earn affiliate commissions and if they're upfront about what they're doing, then I have no problem with it. But I think at the end of the day, we've built a service that is is something people need and it's an easy thing to talk about. One of the quotes I like that I heard recently in the TV show, The Profit, is brand should be conversational. And I think with WP Curve, we've like captured that thing where people can explain what it is in one sentence very easily and people want to talk about it and want to refer us. So it's sort of almost been an accidental thing, the affiliate program. And we don't focus on it much at all, really. I don't think we've even ever emailed our affiliates with a dedicated email. We get quite a few signups through it, but we get more just from people just referring us. Speaking of conversational, you know, you mentioned you wrote your book in a week and you are quite prolific. You have a a writing style that seems breezy, like it comes easily to you. And I'm curious as to your creative process. You know, how do you leverage your creativity? It seems like you get a lot of traction, whereas I feel like most of the things that I write don't end up going anywhere. So I'm curious (laughs) as to... Uh, what your approach there is. And then 
Also, you recently hired a content manager, a great guy named Kyle. And I was interested about that because, you know, there must have been a fear like, well, can he keep up the quality of my content? Are people going to be curious to read his things as well as mine? You know, are we all following Dan or is there something Mm. more general there that other people could produce? And I was really excited to read the first income report from Kyle and it was up to your standards. So I'm curious as to how you thought about that whole process and how it's working out for you. In my situation, I can only create content if I'm really excited about what I'm creating. And that's not just content, that's just anything. I can really only do any job if I'm really excited about the job that I'm doing. So what I've been able to do reasonably well in the last year or two is work out the best way to do something and then write a process and manage a person to do that. In the case of Kyle, it's not that I don't want to do the content anymore, but it's it's sort of like the kind of stuff I want to write about now is not just WP Curve stuff. And I mean, like when I started, it was just WP Curve. Now I'm working on all this other kind of stuff that is not necessarily relevant to the WP Curve blog. So me and Alex kind of decided that the blog had to be less about me and more stand on its own two feet. So that was like a conscious decision. And so Kyle's been, like you've seen a couple of posts on the site from him, but a lot of his time has been spent with the processes, writing processes for guest posts, processes for just for himself, doing things the way I do them, which is kind of scary. And I'm sure he'll, <laughs> you should interview him about it. You'll probably get a more honest response. <laughs> I, I think it'll go well because I think the, like, the, the popular content, the stuff that does well is the really detailed guides. And we've got guest writers who can do those. The monthly reports are really popular. And me and Alex just throw stuff at Kyle and Kyle just kind of absorbs it all and puts it in there. And if there's a problem, you know, if there's like a problem with the order in which it happens, like this morning we're on the monthly performance call and he's like, it would be really good if I did the monthly report after this call, you know, so I can just kind of get all that extra stuff that don't turn up in the numbers. He's managing all of that really well. I think eventually the blog kind of has to stand on its own two feet. I think it's going quite well. The podcast is going to be an interesting one because Kyle's going to start doing a podcast, which I haven't really seen done too much before where the host kind of retires and <laughs> puts someone else on there. So that'll be a really interesting test. But I'm actually quite confident it's going to go pretty well. Me and you are both big podcast fans. And you mentioned earlier that Twist was part of your journey. What's your journey look like now? What podcasts and blogs are you currently excited about? It really hasn't changed that much. Like I know, I mean, I listened to your show forever and I think you were the first person to mention This Week in Startups and I still listen to that religiously. Probably the only newish one is the James Altucher podcast, which is just awesome. I think he just comes down to like a personal style. I think he's just like a really like lovable dude. <laughs> Just just seems like a good bloke. And he also has interesting people on there. And I've also started trying to read books because I figure if I write books, I better read them. So I bought a Kindle and I've, I read the Peter Thiel book. So I was pretty happy with that. I think that was the first book I'd read in three years. And now I'm trying to read the Tony Robbins book, which is a whole nother level for me, but I'm about 15% through. So you recently started a thread in the DC about investing outside of your business. And you made a great comment on last week's post, which resonated with me quite a bit. And you basically took issue with this idea of putting it all in your business. So that's the opposite of something that I've said a lot on this show. You know, like when you're just getting started, you know, you want to invest in yourself. You want to put everything in your own business. But you have an interesting counterpoint to that. So let me know your thoughts around that. I think entrepreneurs get a bit insular and they kind of think, you know, put everything in your business is is good advice. But the part that they probably don't realize is exactly how much they're already putting into their business. And like if you take my background, for example, I've worked in business for eight years. During that time, I haven't put away any superannuation. So I haven't really invested in any 
I've spent, you know, at least 60 hours a week of my most productive time working on my business, maybe another 40 thinking about it, occupying my attention. I've sacrificed probably a hundred grand wage for every one of those years. So if you start adding all of that up and, and look at like the percentage of the investment I'm doing in terms of my time, my attention, and even my money, putting more actual real money into the business may, may not be the best idea. And I mentioned I was reading the Tony Robbins book, but one of the things that stood out to me was he said that no matter what path you take in terms of like the asset class, that you're investing in, at some point in your life, you're going to be wrong. So the way I read that is, I know people who've doubled down on real estate and then real estate's crashed and they had nothing else or the same with the share market. And business, I think is the same. Like at some point, my business is not going to be as successful as it is now. And so putting more money into that business, I think may not be the best advice. Yeah, I like that. It's also just like, hey, just because you're successful doesn't mean you're smart or doesn't mean you can read the future. If you have the opportunity to get some other horses running for you, it might make sense to do that. That really resonated with me. So I'm glad you brought that up. One final question I have for you is that You've been an active DC member as well as I know that you're active in a bunch of other forums and you're prolific in a lot of forums. I'm curious as to how you get value out of them. Why are you such a sort of a passionate participator in forums online? You know, hanging out online forums sometimes gets derided as like maybe unserious or like that's not real work. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. And also, since you've been in the DC for a few years, I'm curious as to what you think I could do to improve that community. The first thing is I'm not active in any forums other than the DC anymore. So this is just going to turn into a giant big DC pitch. But yeah, I mean, the DC and your community has just been absolutely amazing for my business. And I love the community there. I, I just, I love putting content in there. I kind of struggle sometimes trying to work out what to put in there. But if I think of something that like isn't appropriate for my blog or like is a little bit more private or, or is something that's really going to resonate with that audience, you get so much like actual real back and forth from that, you know, as opposed to putting... 5,000 words on your blog and getting like a two-line comment. And I mean, the networks, I've already talked about the amount of people, like my book was pretty much written and published and marketed and translated by the DC. And my business started in the DC and its first customer, still current customer, longtime DC member, Kyle's in the DC. I mean, yeah, I, don't, I, I should stop now because it's getting ridiculous. I really appreciate that. I'm curious. So tell the story then how it started because this isn't unique to DC. You could do this in any forum. So maybe give the idea of the first few steps of how someone might leverage a forum to get started with an idea. My forum approach might be a bit selfish. It may not work if you don't actually have kudos in that forum to start with. But I like when I'm starting a project to put it in the forum as a case study and pitch it in a way that's going to add value to other people, which it will if you're documenting your journey and you're doing something that is you know, similar to what other people in the forum want to do, then it's going to add value. So that's what I generally have done in the DC and post what I'm thinking and feeling before I start something. Wait for the avalanche of people to tell me it's a horrible idea. <laughs> And then just report back each month with what I'm learning. And <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dan, it's always a pleasure to have you drop by. I appreciate you uh, sharing your journey online. And I hope you come back on the show sometime soon. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.